Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen podcast network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 202 of the pandemic. You may hear Max eating right now. He's had a few good days in a row, which means we've been out hiking, and it means he's very hungry. We have a great show lined up for you today. Jacqueline Friedland, whose book, That's Not a Thing, is out now. Jacqueline is the author of two books, Trouble the Water, That's Not a Thing. Before she became a writer, she was actually a commercial litigator. And as you've heard on this show, we've had several lawyers who went on to become writers. She did not like that office life, and she began making plans. And one of those ended up being going back to get her MFA from Sarah Lawrence College in 2016, and she is off and running in her career now. We'll get to all of that in just a few minutes. First, as you know, we have a little bit of business to cover. We do two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday. Two things you can do to help us out. Tell your friends about us. Spread the word. Word of mouth is the best thing you can do for us. And wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a review. We host a monthly happy hour, which you can find at thewritersjam.com. And in the next few days, we will be putting up the October happy hour. You can also buy any of the books of people who have been on the show. You click on the bookshop link. When you do that, you do two things. You support local and independent bookstores all over the country, and we get a little money back, which, as I just said, Max has been hiking a lot. He needs good food. There's a monthly newsletter you can sign up for where you'll get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings around the web. And you can always support the Solid Listen Podcast Network by clicking on that Patreon behind that paywall. It's a dollar or $5 a month. You get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Now, before we get to the interview, I just want to take a few minutes. This is going to be the shortest intro I've ever done. Watched the debate last night with President Trump and Vice President Biden. Like many of you, I was horrified by what I saw on the stage No more so than when the president was given an opportunity to denounce white supremacists and white nationalists and didn't. And I don't know what else it is going to take for people in this country to understand whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. If you can't believe in the basic humanity that requires someone to say, we do not accept white nationalism or white supremacy. We are going to bring the full force of the law against them, and we are going to stop that, and we are going to begin to unwind the things in this country that have been built on those premises. I don't know why that is controversial. I don't know why that is difficult for people. But when I posted that event on my Facebook page, and I've talked about the small town that I've come from, a couple things happened. I had some old friends who said some things that likely ended our friendship. But more often than not, there was complete silence. And I know people see the page because when I post stuff about Max, that shit goes crazy. So this isn't an algorithm problem. I interact 
in that world a lot. And we've reached a point where it's time to choose a side. Both of these sides do not have arguments. Both of these sides are not equal. And if when you go to the polls or when you get your mail-in ballot or your absentee ballot, I want you to keep one thing in mind. We have a president who had an opportunity to denounce white nationalism and white supremacy and didn't. I don't care what your political belief is. If you vote for that person, you are putting a stamp of approval on that. There are not two sides to this. I've been horrified since I woke up this morning. Horrified. Terrified that people are afraid to speak out against this person and to to speak out against these ideas. But that's what we have to do. I interviewed Hafiz Ajeeter a few months ago, a few weeks ago, I guess, on the show. And she said something that stuck with me, which is that in this country, white people don't have to be brave. The country is set up for us. We don't walk out the door and think we're going to be killed by police. The world outside of our doors is not trying to get us. And it is for black and brown people. And we've allowed that to happen. I've allowed that to happen. I've been a part of this as much as anybody else. And it's time for people who look and sound like me to be brave in the way that we have made our black and brown brothers and sisters be brave. And outside of the overt racism that was on that stage last night, outside of being able to say we do not condone white nationalism and white supremacy, think of all of the art and joy and happiness that our black and brown brothers and sisters don't get to experience because of the energy they expend fighting back against this thing that we should be fighting back against. If you can't come up with that empathy in your heart, if you can't take the pain and rage that you feel for whatever happened in your life and look around and imagine what it would be like if you were black or brown and then understand why what happened on that TV last night on that debate stage is horrifying, then I truly feel sorry for you because you're lost. You're lost in whatever pain has happened to you. And all that I would say is I hope you find a way to deal with that. Because when you do, when you're able to access your own pain, when you're able to understand it, you can see beyond that. And you can see that just because you have pain doesn't mean other people can't have it as well. And that they can't have it in different, worse ways. And that the way through that is not to deny that it's there, but to face that it's there. And to look at it. And to speak about it. And to be brave. So that's what's been on my mind today. I realize that's a lot. That is also not matching up with the tenor of what you're about to hear because Jacqueline and I had a lovely conversation. She's really fascinating. She's also one of those people that no matter how much you get done, like when you hear her story and all of the stuff that she did, you're like, I really, I have more time. I have more time to work. She's fantastic. We've had several lovely conversations both on and off the air. I cannot wait for you to hear it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Jacqueline Friedland. The 
Yeah, hopefully there is an after times because that's sort exactly of un- right. Yeah, like <laughs> I been- said to my husband yesterday, I said, you know, I was like washing dishes and looking out the window, and I thought to myself, I never imagined that I would live through a pandemic. And then I thought, well, I actually haven't quite lived through it yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, like, yeah, 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 you can't speak too quickly about that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the moment you, like, cough and everybody just stops in the kitchen and is like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you were saying type A, you're in the house, you have kids, dogs, husband, can't really get out. Like, how are you guys coping with that? Because just... Like what little I know about you, you seem to be a go-go kind of person. Um, I am a go-go person, but I'm also a rule follower. And when my governor says stay home, <laughs> I, I want to stay home. And the actual, the difficult thing has been, I am the rule enforcer in the house also. And so much of every day is spent with people, including my husband saying, but can't we just do this? And can't we just go there? And why can't we eat in restaurants yet? Everyone else is doing it. And I am still afraid of that. So we're, we're starting to venture out a little. We've done some doctor's appointments and things like that. Um, but but largely we're home. That's good. I mean, it's bad that you have to be the one that's enforcing the rules, particularly when the, you, you all can't really get away from each other. That can't always mm-hmm. be the most fun part of the day. Yes. Well, I also, for the, for the entire time, you know, when in the very beginning of this whole lockdown, I was so scared that, you know, of everything, taking out the trash cans, like picking up the packages from the porch, that I won't let anyone else in the family do any of that. And they keep, shockingly, they're at this point really offering to help. But um, I just, I feel, I feel like they're going to come in. They're not going to wash their hands properly. It's, I'm, I'm just more comfortable if I just do it all. Yeah, no, that, that feels right. That feels uh-huh. like just from the few conversations we've had, that feels right. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so here's the one interesting factoid about, you know, I do very little research about this is sort of famously on the show, but when I worked at Wired, um, I, David Boys was the lead lawyer in two cases that I covered oh. for like a year. Yeah. And you worked, so cool. at, you worked at the firm, right? Yes. Yes. So, um, I was only there for about a year, but I, I did work there and he's like an amazing attorney. And I went to a, um, the company picnic at his beautiful home. <laughs> so you're uh, in New York now. Where are you originally from? I'm also, I am originally from New York, from Long Island, and I'm now in Westchester. So I went, I crossed a bridge as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> so you've gone far and wide and seen many yes, things. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, Broadens my horizons. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have an older sister who also uh, moved from Long Island to Westchester, um, <laughs> along along with our mother who lives here now too. So you're um, like pioneers. You just picked yes. up and moved to a new place. Exactly, exactly. I, you know, growing up on Long Island, I never imagined I would go back. And when I got to college, I made all these friends from Westchester and sort of thought, like, that's the move. And then I met my husband who grew up in Westchester. So we just did it. But um, I have to say that just in the last couple of years, I've gotten sort of nostalgic for the island. I don't think I took advantage as a kid of all that it had to offer in terms of like the beaches and the, you know, just sort of like the nature. And there's a lot of, um, there's much better shopping on Long Island than there is in Westchester. There's more, um, there's just more commerce, more rest restaurants, all of that. So, um, and none of that really mattered to me when I was, you know, 11 and 12 years old. I just wanted to see my friends and hang out. So, um, but I do, I love Westchester, but I miss Long Island more than I expected. And let me face it. If you lived in all that now, you'd be stressed out. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Nostalgia is sometimes left best in the head. Yeah, it'd just be more stores that I have to keep telling my kids that you can't go in there and you right. can't go in that one. They're like, but we can see the beach. Like, nobody's going to that beach. Mm-hmm. That would be what that exactly. was. Exactly. What were you like as a kid? Like, what were you and your sister like as kids? Um, I, well, I got in a lot more trouble than my sister did. That feels um, right. I actually, I was just, what was I like as a kid? I was just working yesterday on writing acknowledgments for my third book. And I was thinking as I got to the part where I was thanking my mother, one of the things I thought of writing, which I did not was, I'm sorry for how I was in middle school. That <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, I have had, so I have a, I have a goddaughter who's now mm-hmm. 18 and, but I've had many conversations with people. And I taught middle school, the one relationship that I do not envy is like 12 to 15 girls and their mother. Like that feels like the hardest relationship that I've yep. ever seen anywhere. Yep. And I lived up to every stereotype. <laughs> and I mean, I was awful. Um, but, um, but my mom says I'm nice now. So <laughs> that's good. I mean, that's the trajectory you want to go on, right? Like you yes. don't want to be really nice as a kid and then like a trash can as an adult. That's right. I'm very good to her now. We talk every day, multiple times a day. Um, and, and I try very hard to make her happy. I'm always polite. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, and so uh, you were getting into trouble. What were you doing? Oh, man. Um, so I was, when I was in middle school, I, you know, typical stuff like passing notes and talking in class, that kind of thing. I also was sort of at the the forefront of uh, my group of friends for experimenting with alcohol. Um, the upside of that was that I, I got myself so sick once in eighth grade that after that, I was actually not, I, that whole like, I'm never drinking again, um, I actually stuck with for several years and even into college was much more conservative than many of my friends because of my bad experiences at age 14 or 13 or whatever it was. Um, but I, I was, I was tough for my parents and I was really like, you know, they were, they watched me, but I was sneaky and I came up with very clever plans. And, um, I, I hope that karma is not a real thing. Cause I have still, you know, three kids to finish middle school ahead of me, but, um, but I'm all over them. I, I, I sort of feel like I know, I know every trick. Well, that's the thing, right? Like I was sort of an asshole kid. And when I taught middle school, I was like, even when the kids were mean to me, I would just laugh. I'm like, there's literally nothing you're going to say to me that, <laughs> you know, that I'm not expecting and that I don't know where that comes from. So, you know, bring me your best shots because yep. I, was, I was also a difficult child growing up. Uh-huh. What did you do? Um, I, I mean, look, I'm mouthy and I'm whippy. I host a podcast, like I'm a writer, like, mm-hmm. you know, I was smart and probably didn't apply myself in school because I didn't have to. And so uh-huh. I use that in other areas and endeavors. Um, and you know, we lived out in the country. So also that's a little different uh, of an experience. Like you can kind yes. of run around and do stuff. And like, you know, when I got into high school, we would, we would race our cars on these old, Oh, wow. State routes, you know, they have uh-huh. no lights, you know, going a hundred miles an hour with our lights off, like oh, zooming through. Yeah. Like, like uh-huh. dangerous, stupid shit. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. But like now I'm like, well, I don't know how any of us, and, and, and none of my friends, like, I don't know, like nobody that I knew in my school and it's a small town, like died when I was in high school, like for all the crazy stuff that we were doing and it being such a small, terrible place. Like we yeah. like completely lucked out. There was no yes, brain in it at all. <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, and so what did your parents do? 
Well, let's see. The first, the first time with the the alcohol, I got in, you know, big long lectures, but no, no long term punishment. The second time, I got grounded for a month, and that month included my birthday, which oh, I just God. thought was the most horrible, cruel punishment ever. Um, and then, and then I sort of, kind of cleaned up my act enough. Um, so there wasn't there wasn't too much they had to do. You know, my grades were good. I was. I got a lot of lectures. I, I do remember that. And I remember rolling my eyes a lot and then getting lectures for rolling my eyes. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I also, I have to say, like, my, I think that my parents were a little more strict than all of my friends' parents. So while I would get myself into trouble, I always got caught. I never ended up, like, I could get away with it far enough to create the trouble, but never to actually get away with it. So... I don't know. My older sister never got caught. She didn't cause as much trouble as I did, but she never, she was also much better at hiding whatever it was she needed to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't want to draw a line, but it is kind of funny that you wouldn't go on to become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like the training ground was happening as an early age. If there were lots of lectures yes. and arguments back yes. and forth, like I can eventually find the argument that will get me out of this. <laughs> Um, although I have to say going to become a lawyer was my mother's suggestion. And by that, by the time I was old enough to make that choice, I was following instructions from her. Yeah. But also she's like, you've been training your whole life for this. I don't know if this is going to make you happy, but I feel like you'll be good at this. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what did they do for like, what did, what did they do? Like, what did they uh, do for a living for careers? Ah. Um, so my mom was a professor of special ed. She, I used to say she teaches teachers how to teach kids with disabilities. Yeah. My sister's Um, a special ed teacher. She was. Yeah. And she worked at the real deal. And she worked at a few different, um, universities and, um, created, you know, transition programs to get kids who were sort of like the age of finishing college into like work study programs, you know, like doing the checkout counter at, um, supermarkets and bagging groceries, those kind of things. And, um, she just actually just retired this year. She was working as the head of school for, um, a school with, for kids with disabilities. Um, and my father had a chain of, uh, home furnishing stores that was called curtains and home, uh, that was sort of peppered throughout the Northeast. And he, um, when I left for college shortly thereafter, moved to the West coast and is still out there. Um, and at this point, largely retired. Yeah. It's, um, the, the special ed thing is like people, like if people don't know how difficult that is, and particularly Mm -hmm. these days, like I'm sure like the last 10 years of your mom's career has been was challenging just because of the way school districts handle that stuff now. Yep. Yep. She said when she first started out, she said people never heard the word, word autism. They didn't know what she was talking about. They would say artistic, right. um, you know, and now it's like, it's really blown up and she's been very in demand. And I think, you know, she actually, I, as a child, I always thought, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do something like my mom that really helps the world. And then all of a sudden I was a lawyer and working for these big, you know, commercial cases doing nothing. Like, you know, I do a pro bono case here or there where I got to, you know, I was so junior, I was barely doing anything on those cases that I really didn't feel that I was doing anything to help anyone. And, um, as a writer, I've decided I've given it a lot of thought of how am I helping people now? And I think that reading stories, um, 
puts and putting yourself in the shoes of characters. It teaches people empathy, I hope. And so in that way, I hope I'm doing some good for the world, but I still think my mother has done a lot more. Yeah. It's, I, well, I think every writer goes through that, right? Like every writer, because it's, it's just one of those weird careers where it's like, it's very selfish in that you sit and mm-hmm. you do this by yourself. Even if you're doing yeah. research, like you sit and spend a lot of time in your own mind, thinking about your stuff to build these worlds. Um, but like you said, like I've had the empathy conversation with so many people recently on the show, because I particularly think that particularly as we're dealing with like the anti-racist stuff and the black lives matter things, everybody's rushing out. Like all these white people are rushing out to read nonfiction books. And, and I keep telling them like, if you really want to understand experiences that are different than yours, like pick up 20 fiction books by people that are different than you. Like yeah. they're going to put you into worlds that, sh- that are, and the nonfiction stuff is great. The non- it's important, but this other stuff makes you immerse yourself in somebody else's space. And that's yeah. where empathy comes from. Yeah, I agree so much. But I'm a big reader too. And so I, I experience it on my own when I read other people's work. And sure. I appreciate it. And I, and I feel also having read some, some books, you know, about people who are different than I am that I I've learned a lot, like, you know, talking about just like the black lives matter movement and what books to read, like the hate you give or, um, small great things by Jody Picoult. Like these books are actually really kind of eye opening for people who've not had experiences that, you know, they feel have taught them enough. Yeah. And I, so there's an audio book, um, Act, actress uh, Bonnie Turpin, and she did the Hate You Give. I buy, I get every book she does because it's amazing, and that's one that I just bought and downloaded because I I didn't want to read it. I actually want. She's won like the last five awards for like best voice. Oh wow! Uh-huh. Yeah, and she's amazing. She'll do fifty voices, and she creates all these characters. And I've heard that that book that she did uh-huh. is like in a, just an amazing piece of art. And so wow, yeah, I'm very I bet much. It looking. is. Yeah, you know, just because I know the story of the book, but to then uh-huh. be actually immersed in that as like a radio play where it's just yeah. you and her creating this world. Um, I've had to sort of pre- mentally prepare myself for it because... Well, it's interesting you say that because that book, in addition to having a great story, um, part of what I found so compelling about it when I read it was that the the writing is it's unique and there's like actually a, a cadence to it, almost like it's music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should be really, I, I wouldn't have thought to, I don't often listen to audiobooks, but I, now that we're talking about it, I kind of want to. So once you get to high school, like, what are you like in school outside of the troublemaking? Like, are you, mm-hmm. are you like a popular kid? Are you a theater kid? Are you athletic? Are you, I always say these, like, you can only be one. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. 
Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it's, I struggle with this because it was really important to me to be popular. I worked hard at it and I was able to do it, but I don't know that the, and, and I had my friends, if they ever were to listen to this, I would say that they're all nice people, but I don't know that I had the best chemistry with them. I don't know that they were the group where I actually belonged. Um, I didn't feel totally fulfilled in high school. I thought I was happy at the time. Um, but I, in retrospect, when I look back, my favorite moments of high school were when we were on vacation and I would meet kids from other places. Or when I joined my, I went to private school and when I joined my town swim team and I met the the kids from the public school or things like that, though, that's where I sort of, and even when I, I started dating a boy who was two years ahead of me from my own school and would hang out with his friends. Like in all of those places, I felt more comfortable than I did with my own group of friends. And then when I went to college, it was like all of a sudden I could just, I just, it was like I landed in this universe that made sense for me. And so I think, you know, sometimes you get like a grade in a school that's just not the right mix. And I think that that was what I had, but I, I am pleased to be able to report that I was popular in high school. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because a lot of what we end up talking about on the program, people that listen know this, is this sort of search to, to find yourself. I mean, writing is so much about your voice and figuring out who you are and what you want. And it feels like so much, it's why I talk about childhood. So much of childhood is not about that. Right? Like it's right. sort of like trying to navigate and fit in wherever you are. And you're more concerned about the externals than the internals, um, right? which, you know, can be fine, but oftentimes it leads to, that's why we have midlife crises, right? It's like, yes. oh shit. <laughs> I never <laughs> sat down and thought like, what makes me happy? Yeah, it's true. Although, you know, I went back, I had a high school reunion 
um, I want to say it was probably about five years ago. And prior to the, re I was helping to plan it. And prior to the reunion, I was thinking about all these different um, now adults, I want to say kids from the grade who <laughs> um, I never spent time with, who I was sort of excited to see at the reunion. And I thought I'd, I'd we'd chat and we'd get deep into things and, you know, 10 minutes in the room with the same group of people. And you just fall back into your old patterns. There I am sitting back with the people I always hung out with. And there's the theater group sitting with each other and so on and so forth. And so, you know, you try and grow and change and you do the best you can, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I'm from a very, very small town. So like a lot of my friends still live there. So we've all kind of grown up together, even though many of us, some of us left and things like that. Uh -huh. um, and so I know like I have a weird experience. Like when we go back, like, you know, 140 of the 170 kids will show up and everybody's like, wow. Jen, yeah. Uh -huh. Like I'm, so I'm always intrigued by other people's experiences because the more I see of it, I'm like, Oh, I, that was a weird, I, I have a weird hometown experience. Sure. Yeah. But you said you graduated with 170 kids. Yeah. Wow. At yeah. my school, we, I graduated with 64 kids. Wow. Yeah. Which may be part of why it was hard to find my exact right fit. Um, yeah. when it came to a group of friends. I don't normally f have people that graduated with fewer than, but there were, there were only 5,000 people in my town. So like it was wow. a very tiny town. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Um, well, I guess, you know, private school. So yeah. I mean like Long Island feels bigger than Loveland, Ohio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we did not have, we had a beach. It was in the little pond in my neighborhood. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> there was a little dirt that you could go and sit on. So when you go to college, like you sort of get through the high school stuff and you're going like, what's the plan? When you say, what do you mean? What's the plan? Like when you went to college, like what did, what did you go to study? Like, what, like, did you have like, this is the beginning of my life or were you just like, that was the next step? Um, well, I, at the time, I suppose I thought it was the next step. I, I remember actually thinking, you know, I'm like a, a real hopeless romantic. And I remember thinking before I left for college, like a lot of people meet their husbands in college. I wonder if I'm going to meet my husband. And, um, I knew that I was going to major in English. I was always, I, that was like, it, I didn't even have to give it a second thought. And when I was a junior in high school visiting colleges, um, I, I ended up going to the university of Pennsylvania. And when we went to Penn, um, I sat in on an English class and then the professor of that class was this, uh, old, older man who wearing, you know, like you couldn't have scripted it. He was wearing a tweed jacket with the elbow patches. Like he had, he was on point and he invited me down to his office and, um, to, you know, ask questions about the school and the program. And I was just, I was smitten by everything. The guy had this big picture of Mark Twain on the wall behind it, like a painted black and white shirtless Mark Twain. It was weird, but amazing. Um, that is very I, weird. Right. And like books falling books everywhere. You know, you like, you could barely make space to get to the chair because, because of the books. And, um, so I knew I was excited to go to a place where I could study, things that were interesting to me, you know, there was not, there was not a science or math class on the horizon, which was <laughs> lovely. Um, and, um, I just figured, you know, I'd get there and like college is supposed to be great. But I also, I have to add that when I left home, I, my parents got divorced when, um, when I left for college and I knew that sort of when I was leaving, I knew that was kind of like the end of the, that chapter. Wow. So I went in, you know, my dad moved out that, that October. So, 
Um, but I knew it was coming down the pike and I, I sort of, it was like the beginning of me trying to learn how to compartmentalize because I wanted to go to college and have all this fun and not focus on what was going on at home. And it was, it was a strange way to transition. And I think part of the nostalgia that I have for Long Island that I was talking about is the fact that like, it was like the end of a whole book. Like everything changed after that. And now when I go to Long Island, which I only do every couple of years, um, and I see the, the towns that I used to frequent and all of this, it's, it's sort of like, wait, this place existed. Like that really happened. It's not something I made up in my brain. Um, so it was, a, it was a complicated, but fun time. Yeah. That's, I remember when I was, I remember like in the, like the week before I went to college and my parents didn't get divorced, but <laughs> they sold the house like wow. I, I tell uh-huh. the story, like I literally, my bed was the last thing taken out of the house. Like I woke up to the wow. mover saying like, you have to get out of bed now. <laughs> and like That was the last thing they took out of the house. And I remember sitting in the basement sort of weeping uncontrollably watching TV. Like I didn't know what the change was, but I'm like, I feel like something is over. Like yes. this thing is yes. just, and, and I didn't know what that meant. And so that's yes. like, and so to also have your parents like make that their split had yep. to be, you know, when I was a, I believe a senior in college, I took a, as an elective, I took a, a course in women's studies and I forget what the topic of the course was specifically, but on the first day of the class, the teacher said to us, um, I want you to open your notebooks and write down, um, all of the significant events that have happened to you since you first got to college. And I was in the class with a couple of my very good friends and I'm, you know, watching them writing, you know, I met my friends, I grew up, I did, you know, I became independent, whatever. And I'm writing, my parents got divorced. They sold the, t- the home I grew up in. My mother got remarried. My mother got cancer. Um, my father moved across the country. The cat that I had for my whole life died. Jesus. And like, I mean, the list went on and on, but I have, to, and yet I loved college. I had the best time. So, like. well, but that's the juxtaposition of life, right? Like, because you're both yep. like, it is a new chapter, which is always exciting. And yes, you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit, like a love of sort of travel, like it's, that's the love of travel is everywhere you go, you get to reinvent yourself or however long you're there and immerse yourself in a thing that's not yours. Like you traveled for four years, right? Like yes. that was what it was, but also this sort of profound loss and like nothing is permanent. What the fuck? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, uh, I feel like I'm going to have my therapy stuff to talk about next. <laughs> so when you were in college, like you, you went to study English was writing what you wanted to do in life or was that just like, I love literature and English and I'll see what happens with that. Uh, the second thing it was, I love literature and English and I'll see where it can take me. I, you know, I would have, uh, I always thought being a writer sounded amazing and fantastic, but I also thought it sounded sort of the same as being a rock star or a famous yeah. movie actor. Like, yeah, it sounds great, but like, I can't do it. Um, and it, it just didn't feel like a realistic option. And so I thought, you know, maybe I would become an English professor. And then that professor who I met when I went to visit Penn, he actually, I requested him to be my faculty advisor. Uh, so I had several meetings with him throughout the four years. And when I was in my senior year, we started talking about what I was going to do after college. And I told him I was thinking about becoming an English professor. And he said, <laughs> he, he was about, it was like his last year of teaching before he was going to retire. And he said to me, you know, 
if that's what you want, like I'll support you, I'll help you. But I have to tell you, it's so much work. It's not what it used to be. The jobs are so hard to get. You're not going to make any money. It's a real grind. If there's anything else that you could possibly imagine doing, do that. So I went to law school. Um, (laughs) However, you know, from the minute I, like, I remember during law school, I met some woman at a party who was in an English PhD program. And I remember I was so insanely jealous. And then once I actually became a lawyer, I started reading more in my free time than I had ever done in the past because I was like afraid of giving up my creative part of myself. And it was actually at that point that I started reading, I had always read like the classics and the things you would read in school. But, um, I, at that point picked up books by like Jennifer Weiner and oh, Emily yeah. Giffen. I, lo- I love and, them. I love them. Right. Emily and, Giffen. I've read all, she's something borrowed, right. And something blue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just so and you so don't I think just, that I, I like, I went through a large chiclet phase where I'm like, this shit is amazingly great. It's good stuff. Yeah. yeah she literally is one of my favorite writers. Emily. Yeah. That makes me so happy. I think she's excellent. And yeah. I, um, and by the way, I should add that she has a, I follow her on Instagram. I don't know her in person, but she has an, ex, she, she has a very in- interesting Instagram feed with a lot of good content. If you're curious. Oh, well, um, I will go look that up. Um, and I feel like you guys are politically uh, simpatico. Yeah, um, I mean, I so, think we are in a lot of things. Like just reading her books, I'm like, oh yeah, we would be friends. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But um, but when I was reading those books, it was like my first introduction to sort of like women's fiction. And I remember yep. at the time thinking like, wait, I could write this. Like this I could do. So that was sort of the beginning of me kind of pursuing the writer's path. And also it was also slash, I need to get out of this life as a lawyer. I'll never survive. It's, it's so interesting to me. I've interviewed uh, dozens, scores of people during the pandemic and mm-hmm. every, like there's almost no writer that doesn't tell me some version of this story, which is like, oh yeah, I mean, I wanted to write, but like, who can do that? How do you do that? Right. Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> it's, it is so bizarre to me. And, and like, and I've said this a million times, like there's a path to be a lawyer, right? Like you go to law school, you take the bar, you do the thing. And so you look at that and you're like, well, I understand how to get there. Yeah. And, and you don't think it's impossible. You know, it's going to be really, really, really hard, but it's not impossible. But like publishing a book, it's just like, well, that can't happen. Right. right. It's just this, you know, like, <laughs> nobody knows how this magic works. Exactly. It's so true. And I also, part of what um, put me out of it, it was twofold in college was that the, the people who I knew who were actually going to pursue creative writing were like, I want to say they were artists, you know, they, pretentious. you can use the word pretentious. It's fine. (laughs) Very lyrical, just not the kind of writing that I would do or want to read. And the other thing is that I did take two creative writing classes in college. One was creative nonfiction and the other was just, just a basic like freshman year creative writing. And they were so much fun that, and there was such a lack of rules or structure to exactly what you needed to do that it felt like, well, this is in school. This is not like a real class. This is like <laughs> your time to create, you right. know? And it, so it just, so yeah, I agree with what you were saying. The other thing that has been coming up a whole lot is like the privilege of the language and the stuff that we read, right? Like it is, when we think of creative writers, we think of exactly who you just described, right? And like, mm-hmm. if, if you're like me, which I, I think that we're, we have lots of similarities. It's like, well, that's not my background. I don't have that stuff. Like I don't, I didn't come into college with like having read the fucking canon. Like, right. I, you know, I don't know. I read every science fiction book in the world, but <laughs> you know, you sit in a class and like, you can't be like, well, here's how Joseph Campbell would you know do this. And that, that wasn't a thing. Right. And so I just thought, well, I guess I'm just not part of the group. 
<laughs> right? Like you, and that yes. was sort of the feeling that you had. Yes. Although, and I have to say, you know, I went back to school and got my master's in creative writing as, as an adult. And, um, I, in every class when you, the first, you know, there are these nice small collegial seminar classes where you go around the room and say who you are and why you're there kind of on the first day. And, um, there were again, a lot of these, as we said, pretentious <laughs> writer types, but, but not everyone. And I remember at the time, like saying like, I'm going to take a stand for my position, which is that I, I want to write and I want to sell books. I, I don't just want to write for my own self and put it in a drawer, which a lot of these people are comfortable right. to do that. Like it's just part of their soul that they need to get down. I want to share my writing. And I, I felt very brave at the time saying I'm here to sell books. And I actually, since that time have created my own personal, um, crusade that where, you know, there's like lowbrow art and highbrow art. And I have a really big problem with calling with what people would consider lowbrow art, calling that lowbrow. Um, because you know, there's so much talent in creating stories that people devour. And these are the things that sell, like you look at twilight, you look at, um, you know, the hunger games or, you know, things that, that my pretentious writing friends would never demean themselves by picking up. And there, this is, I mean, even soap operas on television, there is art to telling those stories. And no one can convince me otherwise. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is, I always tell folks, like, this is the most unpretentious show about writing because I'm like, look, man, this is not a, it's a craft, it's a skill, it's a trade, like, and there's lots of different parts of it. I, I interviewed Robert Dugani, who sold 6 million books. We had a lovely conversation and we talked about the difference between the business of writing and the art of writing. Right. I agree. Although I have to say that now, so I just, you know, my second book came out in April. I have a third coming out in September of 2021. And I just started working on a fourth, but there's this sort of like maintenance and upkeep portion of the, the, the older projects where like there's some continued publicity requirements and things that pop up that I never expected or imagined. I just sort of, I figured it's sort of, I used to paint in high school sometimes. And like, you know, you work really hard on a painting and you you finish it and you're done. Then you, then you move on and you do the next painting. And, um, it's apparently not like that, with books, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't know. Um, and I, you know, I definitely have that, that introverted quality to myself where I'm like, Oh, part of this, if I want to connect with readers and share my writing, part of this is going to require me to pre COVID, you know, go stand in a room full of people and, and, and reveal everything. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, I, it is so gratifying to actually then connect with the people who've read your writing that, I'm, I, I suck up the hard parts and I just do it. Yeah. I mean, that's the, but that's the business of writing. Like that's the stuff that like, and, and maybe they did it in your MFA program and we'll get to that. But like, if you go to like undergraduate college, there's no, even in the creative writing courses, there's no like, by the way, here's how you get an agent. Here's how you write a right. proposal. Here's how you, you know, here's how, here's the, here's the questions you want to ask the agent if these kind of publishing houses do this kind of thing, all the stuff that like you need to know if you're actually going to foster your career, you kind of have to find out like running 60 miles an hour down the road, holding two novels in your hand, right? Like, like what do I do? (laughs) Um, 
But I have to say that being a lawyer is kind of the same thing. In law school, you learn so much high-level, interesting, conceptual law, and then you get to these law firms, and what you don't know is how to staple the blue back onto the brief, or you know, like how to actually deliver a document to court, or even just like the site checking is like totally different than what you do in school. So there's a lot of the on-the-ground training in all of these industries, I guess, is um, not not what it should be. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because I have several people that were lawyers who became, because, you know, to get into law school, you have to be good with the written word. Like, that's just part mm-hmm. of what you have to do, and language is a big part of the law. And so I've actually interviewed I've maybe a half a dozen people that were lawyers and had this sort of same existential moment of like, well, this was a bad choice. Like, I want to do this other thing. So what was the moment? Like, when, what was that? When did you first be like, or, you know, have that like, oh, man, I think I want to do this writing thing. So it was actually, I was working as a, a first-year associate. I finished out the year. I had just gotten married, like, sort of right before I started my job. And my husband and I decided to have our first child. So I worked, you know, through the pregnancy. And then when I got my three-month maternity leave, I thought, like, oh, my gosh, this is my moment. I'm going to write a book now. And if I can write a book, um, you know, I won't have to go back to being a lawyer and I had, I mean, fortunately, I had an infant to take care of, though, and he was demanding, um, and he still is 16 years later. Yeah, I was trying not to and, laugh, but I'm like, well, that feels like a horrible plan to write a book. I'll have a baby and write the book. Well. Yeah, he was one of those infants that, like, every time you put him down, he starts crying again, you know? Um, so it, it didn't work out exactly as I expected, okay. but I did spend that time, you know, the, the times where, like, in the middle of the night, I was, like, pushing his stroller back and forth in the in the, uh, the hallway of our apartment building in New York City, trying to get him to sleep, and it didn't work. So I was out there for hours with free thinking going on. And um, I, I dreamt up an, an idea for a book, and I started doing just the littlest bit of research. And then I went back to work, but I was part-time, and I was able eventually to start using the baby's nap time and when he was sleeping. And over a period of many years, I drafted a novel. And um, I, at the time, remember thinking, like, I really, I could use some guidance. I could use, like, deadlines. I could use a mentor. And I didn't have any of that. And um, I then decided, like, all right, fine. This law thing is really just not bringing me satisfaction. I'm going to teach legal writing because maybe that'll sort of be, like, a bridge between the two different fields. And I started doing that. And uh, during this time, I had two more kids. And when I got pregnant with my fourth child, my, my sister actually said to me, she's like, you know, you're never going to be a full-time lawyer again if you're having four kids in six years. And um, <laughs> It does seem like a lot. And I, you know, I think it can be done, but I think you have to want it. And I didn't right. want it. So um, that was the moment where I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm going back to school. I'm done with law. I'm going back to school and I'm going to really make a go of this. And I figured either I was going to be home with my kids during that time, or I was going to be doing something productive. And so this was my way of kind of getting out there and seeing if it would work. And I figured if, if it all fails, you know, there's a big chance that I'll go back to law. But yeah. if, if, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So off I went and, um, it was, the best decision. And it was amazing to be in a place where like, you don't go get your master's in creative writing unless you like, unless you, there's nothing else that could have pulled you away from that. So everyone who's there 
wants it so badly. And it's great to be able to surround yourself with people who feel the same way you do. And it just, all of a sudden I had the things that I, I felt I needed. I had a community of writers. I had mentors, I had deadlines. And although the time in school was spent doing sort of schoolwork as opposed to doing my own writing on the side, it was enough to propel me forward and leave me when I graduated from the program ready to really hit the ground running. So I want to go back to that when you were outlining with when you just had the first baby uh-huh. and, you're, and you're like, you're beginning, like how long does it take? Because that's, I mean, four kids in six years is a lot. Yes. Writing is yes, a lot. It is. <laughs> and like, yeah, like in, in, in reconsidering your, I mean, like these are a lot of really big things that are happening. So like, wh- how did you go about like constructing that story? Like, so, how, do you, how do you do that? I don't even, I can't even conceive of how that would happen. Like, I'm in awe right now. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. I feel like in a way I've come full circle because I hit the same level of um, being overwhelmed at the beginning of lockdown. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. And I, at the time, was really into historical fiction. And I felt like I was only, you know, in my early 20s or maybe mid-20s. And I didn't really have, like, enough life experience where I felt like I could write something contemporary. So I looked to history and I started by doing a lot of research and it didn't feel like there's no pressure to like taking information in, you know? Um, and so I just researched and researched until I sort of got that, that aha moment where I, inspiration struck me. I knew I was interested in, you know, the antebellum period and the American South. It's just sort of a, a, a time and place that has always spoken to me. So that's where I put my focus and I start, I, I, as a type A person, am big into outlines. So I would make an outline now and then, and then I'd go back to the research and then I'd outline more. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to read all of the novels that cover pre-Civil War American South topics. And I read so many books. And so it wasn't, I didn't feel stressed about it because, and also the other thing was no one was waiting for me to hand them a finished product. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. Like there was no, there were, the stakes weren't that high. So, and over time I eventually, I don't know, I had an outline and I started working on it, started working on actually drafting a book. And then as I was writing, was realized all of the problems with my outline. So I made a new outline and this went on and it's, it's, the book actually took me 10 years before I was really finished with it. And this yeah. is why, right. but the reason I said we came full circle is because the fourth book that I'm working on is, um, also historical fiction. Um, and at the beginning of lockdown where I was ready to start a new project, but I had all four of my kids home, learning from home, need, needing help with school instruction, um, fear of death at every term from all of us. Um, and so what I did was I researched and I spent a, like two or three months just doing research. And I learned so I was interested every day in what I was learning. I found so much interesting material and, um, it actually, it was the same, I guess I cope with stress by doing research. <laughs> That's something I've just learned about myself. <laughs> we, yeah. This, this happens on the show sometimes it's, but it's interesting to me for people that like, because you didn't have the MFA when you were doing that original Mm-hmm. book. And so one of the things that pops up on the show is sort of this MFA and non MFA way of learning. And uh-huh. that 10 years was really school too, right? Like this yes. you sort of try, because you'd read, you had an English degree. So you'd obviously read a bunch of stuff and you've taken a couple creative writing classes, but writing a novel is more than that, right? Like you also yes. have to sort of figure out like, what are the beats and how do you build characters and where do the B stories go and all of that stuff. And you were just doing that on your own. Yes. Um, but I have to say, so 
I have two points to make. First, when we first moved to the suburbs, we went to a barbecue and I met, I was introduced there to someone, to a guy who's, to Jonathan Tropper, who um, used to live near us. And he was, you know, the successful writer. And so I was sort of picking his brain as much as I could. <laughs> and he said, he told me he got his MFA at NYU and I should, if I was really serious, I should consider going back to school. And at the time I remember thinking like, no, I don't need that. Like, I'm not doing that. I can write a sentence, you know, and his <laughs> words just, his words just really stuck with me. And as the farther I got into the process of writing on my own, the more I realized like, wow, that would be really helpful to have additional instruction. Yeah. However, when I actually went to school, what I thought I would be taught was sort of like the mechanics and like how to build your arc. And, you know, th at this point of the story, like one third of the way through, the, like these three criteria should be met and so on and so forth. And that's really not what I was taught. What I was taught was, um, you know, a lot of just workshopping, writing a scene and then talking about what worked and what didn't. So a lot of those sort of mechanics and the beats and whatever, I feel like I'm still figuring that out on my own. And that's maybe why there's so much um, variety in the books out there is because there's no real right. method that people can be taught. Yeah. But, but I would still like to be taught. I would still like to be shown step one, do this, step two, do that. Um, that know, would be awesome. It's interesting because it depends on the kind of book you're writing. Like I've interviewed several um, crime writers and they're like, they structure it like a TV show, right? And they're like, mm -hmm. at this point in the book, this thing needs to happen. At this point in the uh -huh. book, this thing needs to happen. And they're like, so they already have the format and what they're doing is building their, you know, finding their characters and then building their characters to those points. Uh -huh. um, and, I, you know, this is, again, like the variety of writing. Like if you're, if you're somebody that's writing, you know, non-commercial fiction, it's gonna, there's gonna be a wide variety of it. But like when I read Something Borrowed and Something Blue, I kind of know what's coming, right? Like I'm like, right. okay, at some point there's going to be, there's going to be a twist with the women, right? And like, right. that's going to be a little bit of a jerk <laughs> and like some decisions going to have to get made. And you're just sort of waiting for that to happen. And the art is doing that with characters that make me care about them in the world, even though I know what's coming. Right. Um, exactly. You know, and I feel like the sort of rise of writing places like the Gotham writers workshop and places like that, that for the non MFA folks to say, well, I just want to get a class about this kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, is really helpful because I think even if you're self-taught at some point, like you said, you need that, like, man, it'd be really nice if somebody could give me a few tips. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. It's just Structure hard. Is, um, is very reassuring at times. Yeah. But, uh, particularly when you're stuck, you need something to get you unstuck, even if you don't right. stay in the format. Yeah. So you, you have your 10 year overnight success. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what happens when the first book comes out? Oh man, it was amazing. It was May of, of 2018. And I love was, that you're like, fun. here's the day and time. Like yeah. I remember the moment. <laughs> it was so great. Especially because, you know, I feel like I didn't talk about it that much, even with like pretty good friends, because, right. you know, everybody wants to write a book. Everybody's right. like a oh, one day I'm going to write a book. And I just, I felt silly saying like, oh, I'm working on a book and it may never happen. And so until I really had something to, to share with people, I didn't want to talk about it. And so on the, when I actually announced on like Facebook and social media that I had a book coming out, everyone was like, what? You did what? <laughs> like, um, nobody had any idea. So um, and it was great. I mean, there, I, I was lucky to get nice reviews and people seem to like the book and it's still selling. So I'm, I feel, I feel very good about, about that project. And I'm not sorry that I put in the time that I did, because I think it was a, as valuable to me as a learning experience as it was, um, a joy to accomplish. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know any, well, I know a few writers that sort of came out of the gate and, you know, they're like, Oh, I did this in three years and it did really well. But most people go through the pro I mean, this, that's why I tell people it's a craft. Like Mm -hmm. you have to put those 10 years in that nobody knows you're doing it so that then you know how to do it. Like, right. no, you don't hire somebody to build a house. Who's like, man, I want to build houses. Like that's <laughs> not who I'm hiring. Right? Right. Like, I, I want to see some things you've done first because the scaffolding matters. For so sure. For it sure. happens. And is this after the MFA program or before the MFA yes. program? This was after the MFA program. So you started was... the book before and then you yep. went into the program. Did you work on it there? A little bit. I sort of, I wrote a couple of short stories that were like a spinoff with some of the characters from the book. And I, in my final year of the program, you write a thesis and it can be the beginning of a book. So I rewrote the book that I had originally written, starting from page one with the same plot, but just totally rewritten. Um, Yes. (laughs) And I, so by the time I graduated, I had about 50% of the book written. And then it was, it coincided beautifully with the the same my daughter my youngest child starting kindergarten so she was in school for a full day and all of a sudden I had all these hours available that I could devote to it and I I very quickly got the the second half finished because I already knew the story I'd already you know I was in I was I I was in the zone at that point yeah that how difficult was it to say okay page one blank telling the same story again yeah like it was it was rough I also I I changed around you know the chronology of it originally it was just totally a linear story and then um, in the next, in the final version, it's very, you know, it jumps around in time and I, I, the, the back, so half the backstory is out of it and new stuff came in. So it, it changed, but yeah. it was, but still the first, <laughs> the first page is like literally my heart sunk. Like, Oh God, yes. I know that life, yes. particularly after, what, after eight years or whatever, you're like, am I starting this goddamn thing over again? Like, yep. <laughs> it's, 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 it's funny when, when your professor, when the, when your mentor said like, if you can do anything else, do it. Whenever I talk to young writers, I always tell them that if you have any other skill, uh-huh. do it. Like if this is not a thing you want to do because you're doing brain surgery with a butter knife. Yep. So you're going to mangle everything. You, you literally spend your whole life just looking at words you did, looking for the bad stuff, not the good stuff. And you're going to have to do it like 20 times. Like it's yeah. just a miserable existence. Yep. That sounds, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Except for that then it happens. Right. And then the book comes out and yes. you're like, Oh my God, like I did the thing. Yeah. I always compare it. My kids are always like, wait, you like writing? And I always, when I explain it to them, I always compare it to exercise. You know, it's like while you're running at your hardest, like you don't want to be running at your hardest, but when you're finished, you're like, oh my gosh, look how far and fast I just ran. And you feel really good about it. Yeah. And you think tomorrow I'm going to do this again. And then you go to sleep and you're like, well, I don't want to do any of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I celebrated with the wine and now I'm sleepy and I don't want to do any of this. Yeah. So when, when the book comes out then, uh, because that was 2018. So like very quickly the career sort of people began looking for more books. They were not willing to wait 10 more years. The business of writing is not 10 years. So how did that go? Um, well, it's, you know, the, the business of publication is so slow that uh, from the, from the day that I had my, my publication contract for the book to the day it came out, I think was more than a year and a half. So, and I was doing very little by way of editing at that point. So during that time I was working on the next book because I also, I, you know, the, the goal for me, the dream is to be a writer and have a, you know, be prolific and produce a lot. And so, 
Um, I, by the time the book was released, I was actually almost finished with my next one. Um, so, cause that one, that was contemporary fiction. And again, like I had, you know, sort of put in my time with the learning and I knew what I needed to do. And I just, I, I churned it out pretty quickly. And, um, that isn't that interesting out. to you that like the first one takes 10 years and then once you sort of get the process, you're like, okay, like I kind of know what I'm doing now. Yes. Yes. And I also, but a lot of what I didn't know what I was doing was had to do with scheduling also, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort of like, is this my life? Am I a writer? How much time am I <laughs> like, am I going to commit all of this time to something that I don't know if anything is going to happen from? Yeah. So yeah. it was once, once I had one book out in the world, it was sort of like, okay, I, I know that this can, can happen. And so I'm willing to put in all these hours every day until I get it done. And about how long a day, like, do you, do you write every day? Are you one of those insane people? No, no. Okay, good. Um, good. So we're still friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, my goal is to write, um, like four days a week from about, you know, eight to one or eight to two. If I do that, I feel, I feel like I've had a, a productive, successful week. Um, as you know, the, the way my life is structured though, you know, those I'm lucky when that actually happens because every day it's, you know, different since COVID started, but every day it's like one kid calls from school sick, another one breaks his arm. You know? sure. There's always, there, there's a parent teacher conference. There's always something that is coming up, but, yeah. um, I do really try hard to protect my time because the other thing is that with writing and working from home, a lot of my friends and, uh, associates don't really see me as being committed to it. They're like, well, you can do it later. And I I can't like, it's, these are my hours and this is my job and I have to do it now or it won't happen. Yeah. But that's the sort of thing about being a writer is that when I tell, like, it's such a, and like you said, you didn't tell people about it because one, it it always feels a little pretentious to tell people you're a Mm -hmm. writer. And then Mm -hmm. they also then immediately ask the question that every fucking writer hates, which is, have I read something you wrote? Right. Uh, well, that's the other thing is that like, I, so I'm getting more comfortable mentioning when I begin projects, but like, so as I said, like I just started working on, on my fourth book, but like, it's going to be a really long time before that's actually finished. And I don't always love to tell people cause they're like, wait, but you've been working on it since like, I spoke to you like a month ago and you had already started it. Where is it? <laughs> right. Right. I've realized if I talk about things that I'm writing about, I'll stop writing about them because my writing comes out of like oral culture. So if I'm telling you the story, I don't have an incentive to write it down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But it took me a long time to realize that I'm like, oh, I would tell these stories and people are like, when am I going to see that? And I'm like, you just did. You know, like, (laughs) like, I need a new story now. now. Yeah. Like, it's really (laughs) weird. So like, I'm always really careful about like, what are you working on now? Because that just feels like a... Although I will say every time my friends finish a book and I love it, I text them immediately. And I'm like, when is the next one out? Which is an asshole question because it's going to be two years. That's when it'll be out. So what's the new one? Like Um, the the one that is out now, not the one that's coming out. The one that is out now, it's called That's Not a Thing. And it's contemporary fiction about... Um, a young woman who is caught between her first great love who somewhat destroyed her life and the man who she met after she got her life back together. Um, it's sort of, it's, it starts out with her. You see this, she's a young attorney in New York city and she sort of has everything going for her. She's engaged to this great 
uh, neonatologist who's handsome and successful and she's got this great job and she feels really good about herself. And at the very first scene is this awkward moment where they run into the guy who she was engaged to um, in her sort of in her past life. And um, she soon thereafter starts bumping into him everywhere. And while she thought that she was over him, um, there's a lot of unresolved feelings. And then she discovers that he's been diagnosed with ALS and her confusion uh, is exacerbated. And she sort of has to figure out everything um, about herself and her, her goals and her dreams that she didn't know she was still questioning. And one of the things that I am, that I like doing the program because I get to interview people from like these lots of different backgrounds. And this one, the next, the next gen indie book award. Yeah. Yes. The, so the next gen indie book awards are like my favorite awards in the world. Oh, is that right? How yeah. Just because like the big five publishing is great, but like, so like, like we were talking about so much writing falls outside of what can just be strictly genre commercial fiction or nonfiction that like yeah. the indie book awards to me is like a place that, working writers go to celebrate like that's sort yes. of what I feel like that place is yes I would agree with that um and they're lovely to deal with too yeah I mean they, well they support like this sort of like this world that we inhabit um and it seems very inclusive and very like um it just seems like a big a big tent of writers yes yes I, I, I totally agree um, and uh, I was very excited to win. I, um, it's my first time ever winning first place in anything in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to frame whatever you get, right? Oh, for sure. That's I actually, amazing. well, I say that they sent me a medal. It's hard to frame a medal, but <laughs> no, I mean, have you not seen any world war one, world war two stuff? Oh, like, yeah, they, yeah. Good point. 100% right, go right. down to, uh, Oh, what's the, what's the craft place? I can't remember. Michael's? Yes. I wanted to call it Matthews. I'm like, it's not uh, Matthews. <laughs> yes, Michael's has all of the great frames for you to do that. That absolutely needs to be hanging somewhere. I, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. You've inspired me. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> because that's a big deal. Like, it's a big deal. I mean, I, I think awards are silly by and large, but I love those awards just because... Uh -huh. It, it's about working writers. Like it's less about, do you have good publicists? Do you have good marketing and more about the stuff, the writing? Yes. Yes. So that's great. So like your second book, like you came out of the gate with a big first book and then your second book's winning awards. Um, yeah, I've been, um, I, I've good. been feeling pretty, pretty psyched about it. Yeah, you should. And <laughs> now, yeah. Like, but even the way you say it, you're like, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure. Like, yeah. Writers are not conditioned <laughs> to be like, Nope, this was good. Like you can all like <laughs> it's this. It's true. Yeah. It's true. It's yes. very true. So it's you like, mean I assholes think... like me that are like, no, no, be happy. Okay. If you insist. <laughs> yeah. And just like I got the picture of you guys flying on the plane, I better uh -huh. see a picture of this framed hanging above your writing area. Fine, you've got a deal. Yeah. Do you think people that win Emmys and Tonys don't have that shit on their, like, mantle? Um, yeah. They put them on the mantle, but they don't frame them. Well, that's because those are bigger, <laughs> right? You can't really right. frame them. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could wear the medal every time you do a reading. <laughs> Sorry. That would be what I would encourage you to do. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. No? I think frame <laughs> it, but I will frame it. <laughs> yeah. So now, do you, like, do you have an agent, or do you work with, like... Like, I do not have an agent. So you go I, right uh, with like small presses and publishers. Yes. Yes. I went directly and I, I, I've been very happy with that path. Yeah. Um, I find that they, they have my best interest at heart and, um, there's no middleman and 
you know, I don't know, maybe I'll change my mind at some point, but for now I'm very happy as I am. This is one of those things that they don't teach, you know, like this is when you decide the kind of career you want to have. Right. Like, and, and I always encourage people to do small and independent presses just because you can find the one that fits the thing that you want. Whereas if you go to a big place, if you have an agent like that business is like, well, you're going to kind of do what they say. And if you don't have good pre-sales, nothing's going to happen. Right. Right. Which which feels not fun after having spent two years on a project or 10 years on a project. Um, I feel very good about being at a small press, especially because I get to have input in areas that I wouldn't have expected to. For example, you know, I get, I get veto power over the cover if I, if I hate it or, um, yeah. And when there's edits that are suggested to me, I don't, I don't know how it goes down at the bigger houses, but I'm able to say, no, I disagree with you. Here's why. And like, we just leave it as it is, or they're right. And I change it, but it's, I feel I'm not being made to do anything that I'm not comfortable with that because, you know, my name is going to be on these, mm-hmm. these covers and I, I want to feel like I support the word choices and et cetera that have been made. Yeah, no, I mean that, and that is all to me as a, as a writer, like that was always more important to me than getting random house to publish me is that I, right. I wanted to do the thing I wanted to do. And like, it'll find the audience that it finds and it won't find an audience that doesn't want it. And I was always very good with that. i felt that felt more rational to me. Right. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you. Well, I am so glad that we got a chance to talk. I'm glad that you guys uh, made it back from LA safely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> with, with your pandemic hazmat gear. Um, Thank and you I'm, so much. I'm really excited uh, for the new book and I, I can't wait to read it. And I'm, I'm pretty stoked that you won that award. And I, I feel like you now need to go have a little party for yourself <laughs> and make your family make you food and a cake. <laughs> um, well, I'm always up for cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys take care of yourselves and we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. That was Jacqueline Friedland, whose book, That's Not a Thing, is out now. She's lovely. I swear when she talked about having the children quitting her job, getting the MFA and writing the book, I felt like the laziest human being in the history of the world. As I tweeted out the other day, it took me four hours to get dressed yesterday. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that and Jacqueline as much as I loved recording it and talking with her. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us two favors. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That is how we get found. And tell your friends, because that's also how we get found. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes out every Monday and Thursday, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. discovered you could move between the worlds of dreams and real life. 
That's the story of Dream Breachers, where Evan wakes up on his 12th birthday and realizes that something he dreamt about the night before had actually happened. With the help of his friends, a reappearing stranger, and a mysterious organization called the Dream Academy, Evan will discover what it means to be a dream breacher. Dream Breachers is a high-stakes sci-fi mystery adventure about the highs and lows of having all your dreams come true and is perfect for kids ages 8 to 12. If that sounds like a dream to you, you're in luck. You can listen to Dream Breachers now, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.